tiny people and we play with them. Hello and welcome to the Crate and Crowbar Miniatures podcast, which is a second coming of a podcast that uh, we ran for a good year or so about hobby, painting miniatures, collecting miniatures, playing war games. And I ran it with my good friend, Chris Thurston, who is here Hello. with me. Hello, Chris. Um, Hi. Joined by um, uh, Matthew Ward, aka Chimp. Hello. Who joined us on the very sort of the last episode of Miniatures Monthly before that collapsed into a bin thanks to a global virus. Uh, I successfully assassinated the previous podcast. Yep, uh, it's been decapitated. But that doesn't mean that we uh, don't still love painting little tanks and things. So yeah, we're back to talk about that. Uh, so like, I don't know, like Chris, how, it's, we're sort of rebooting this a little bit. So I wonder, like, it, how would you say as an impression to new listeners and old listeners as to what we're doing with this? Right. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's I think it's slightly um, unfair to the COVID nineteen pandemic to claim that it was the sole reason for the previous iteration of this exercise um, sliding binwards. Um, we we had been gently ushering it in that direction by our frequent misunderstanding of what the word monthly means. Yes, that um, was a, for a yeah. while. Which, and then to be fair to us as well, because I'm nothing but not extremely fair, apparently. Um, it was also just one of those things where, you know, our lives were kind of changing in a way that made that cadence a little bit more difficult. Um, before, obviously, this great big upheaval kind of... Um, through things for a loop a bit but um it's really really good to to be uh talking to you both again because it's been like 14 months now since we sat on my sofa to record the last <laughs> literally both the most recent and the last <laughs> minis monthly so it's it's nice to to get some um traction behind this i suppose if people um, our existing listeners, which I imagine many of you will be, because we're going to put this out through the same feed for the, you know, for the sake of existing subscribers. Um, the, the, the reason for a name change is to have a bit of a clean break. Not only are we kind of, um, moving on from the notion of a monthly miniatures podcast to something that will happen in, I guess, though, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but a little bit more of an ad hoc fashion. Um, but also uh, probably moving on from the format of the old podcast, which was very much something that uh, we can't do now <laughs> because there's basically no uh, possibility of Tom coming around my house and drinking uh, four doom bars and <laughs> uh, beating me at age of Sigma. Um, so uh, yeah, so new format, new sort of approach and a little bit looser. And, and as a consequence of that also because of my, um, you know, professional life changing quite dramatically in, in the last year and a bit, I'm probably going to be on the podcast a little less frequently than I was. And obviously that's less frequently than all of the time, literally on all of them. So uh, hopefully though, people will be happy to, you know, uh, receive some thoughts about tiny plastic people again. We should also mention on that subject, actually, while I'm thinking about it, that um, in the absence of Minis Monthly, uh, the um, Print and Crowbar Discord... Uh, role models community, the miniatures community, um, has continued to blossom into a uh, now its own Discord server, which I guess we can link in the show notes, um, and has spawned its own website uh, and its own uh, podcast. So, if you liked the sort of stuff we're doing previously, and this has cropped up in your feed um, uh, out of nowhere, then I would direct you thatwards because 
that's a place to get some of the stuff you've been missing. Yeah, it's so cool uh, that all of this has happened uh, based on our sort of tangential, very tangential involvement. Starting a mm. podcast, like uh, the community has just picked it up and run with it and taken it in their own direction. And it's so, so cool. It's such a great place to hang out and see lovely, uh, lovely paint jobs and people do amazing conversions and sharing tips. Uh, it's just a really, it's just a really nice place to hang out on the internet. Yeah. And I love and that. It's a great, it's, 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 it's great. And like, and also I, I really, I think people, you know, maybe don't be nervous that we've, we've, you know, r- removed the promised cadence from the title of the podcast to something more uncertain. Uh, the truth is all we've done is remove a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's, um, yeah, we don't want to keep up that, you know, the whole false hope thing. It's not a great relationship to have with the audience. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so. But, you know, we're still painting stuff. We're still doing stuff. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've particularly come back to painting in the last sort of week or so. And that's kind of suddenly like the flame is reignited inside of me. And it, after months of, uh, you know, fallow hobby time where I've, I just didn't have the energy to do it for some reason. Um, but you guys, I think have been much more productive. So I wondered like what you've been painting, what you've been doing in the, the past year. Uh, I can go first and do the cliff notes, I guess. Um, cause I, I made a big decision in February, 2020 to really buy in big on my ability to magnetize and transport my miniatures because I decided in early, after we recorded the last one, after chimps report back from brotherhood mm. that, um, 2020 was going to be the year that I got out to more Warhammer events and played more Warhammer. So I spent hundreds of pounds on carry cases, um, and magnets and and stuff so that I could transport my miniatures everywhere. Um, and that's been really useful for taking my miniatures up and down the stairs of my own house. <laughs> and, on, <laughs> and on one occasion to chimp's garden last summer, when we were allowed to play Warhammer and get sunburned doing it. Um, <laughs> I got so sunburned. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we both. Yeah. It's, it was the, it, it's, it's probably the closest to a sports injury. Either of us have ever heard. Um, uh, so, um, but in the meantime, like I, I also, I've had mixture of like very, very intense painting sprees in the last year mixed with some fallow time. And I'm actually coming to the end of a fallow period now, as you say, Tom, but, um, I'm not going to go through everything cause it's, it's been a lot. Um, but I, yeah, I've had quite a big year. I, um, broke out my previous fallow period by rebasing my entire heresy army. So, uh, redoing all my thousand sons. Oh, well, um, I then went into this long period of really uh, forging ahead with my Age of Sigmar Corn Bloodbound. Um, so that's now a fully like 2000 point plus army that gives Bloodthirster, which I finally did. That's the army that I, I took to Chimp's house that time. Um, because I, why paint, um, hex gorgeous skulls if you're not going to ruin someone's day with them? Um, uh, then that's a sigh of despair from Chimp in there. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case I get noise cancelled. Um, <laughs> and then ninth edition 40k rolled around. Um, and so I toyed with a bunch of different ideas, um, like painted some space marines, painted some, uh, Necron test models and things, but then realized something which has become a huge theme for me in this last year as I move away, not from, I'm very much in the chaos camp still, but I've discovered that like the, the, the real Warhammer was the um, dark elf that was lurking inside me the entire time. So that's all I do now. So I got into Drakari, painted up a crusade force of Drakari, um, which I'm going to be returning to probably pretty soon because the new Drakari codex is out this weekend. Yeah. Um, 
painted a bunch of Drakari. Then I got, and then I was like, well, you know what? I like red vampy things, I guess. And I ended up getting into the Song of Ice and Fire miniatures game, oh. uh, which is really good. Um, and I'd happily talk about it uh, in more detail, but uh, got built a, a Lannister army for that game, um, uh, which I painted a whole bunch of halberdiers for and, and some cool character models and things. Got some more stuff to do there. Um, then I finally took a big leap and got an airbrush, um, which opened up a whole bunch of things for me. Uh, then like later that, uh, in the autumn, Sons of Bayamat came out and I picked up the Mega Gargant and painted a Mega Gargant for my, as an ally for my Age of Sigmar Chaos armies, did some Slates of Darkness and stuff in the meantime. Um, then I decided to be ready for things to reopen again, painted up an Escher gang for Necromunda, um, which uh, I'm really pleased with. I really love doing that. Um, and then I, I was like, okay, well, I've done all of those distractions. It's time to get back to my Drukari and get that to a thousand points, whatever, determined to play some 40k. So what I did obviously instead was paint an entire Daughters of Cain army in secret in three weeks. Um, wow. like a madman. So I got, I just, um, Broken Realms started the New Age of Sigma narrative event. And I realized that I just, I just love. I just love the vampy elves a lot. And so um, the first book of that Marathi is great and moves the story forward in some really cool ways. Whereas Marathi is one of my favorite characters in Age of Sigma. One thing leads to another. I'm covered in snakes. Um, painted a lot of snakes. Um, so Are they still, uh, still clustered in order? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we could definitely talk about some of those fun plot developments. Um, they, yeah, she's made some decisions. Um, so I painted loads of blood sisters and, and Baldrin and Heinerai harpies, which took ages. Um, and I'm currently, uh, that brings me up to waste up to the present. And I'm currently working on, um, Marathi herself. I have the shadow queen on my desk next to me now. Fantastic. So that's uh, been my, my year. That's awesome. Uh, I've got to big up your, um, Insta accounts, both of you, like, I've, it's been a real pleasure seeing how much, like, better at painting both of you have gotten and photography and the rest of the kind of uh, attendant performative, uh, sort of the performative aspects of the hobby, which I, I greatly value actually the idea that, you know, social media is actually really, has been really positive for hobby for me in the past sort of like year where I've, yeah. I don't have the energy to do it myself. Actually just enjoying seeing other people's creativity, uh, and you know, seeing them express themselves through these beautiful models has been uh, a real pleasure. Thanks, man. What's your year been like, Jim? Uh, well, like you, I started off 2020 thinking, yeah, 2020 is going to be the year I go to loads of events. I want to go to as many tournaments as I possibly can. Uh, and therefore, the by our powers combined doomed us all. Mm. Um, but instead of investing in uh, an ability to transport any models at all, I, I painted Nightmare Deep Kid Army. <laughs> uh, possibly and, and have still absolutely no ability to transport it whatsoever um, and it's probably the most difficult transport army you could possibly ever buy yeah um, so that I'll look forward to ever being able to play games again with that and somehow um, moving them from one place to another even getting them downstairs is a is a bit touch and go um <laughs> lots of lovely eels there in that, that army though uh, yes lots of eels primarily primarily eels at the moment i sort of finished a 2000 point army of that and was happy with it and then like chris said uh the marathi book came out and uh, introduced some changes that mean i have more deepkin to paint now um but that's sharks good. and stuff 
Sharks and a turtle. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yes. Quite excited by the turtle. Um, I did lots of, like, once I realised I wasn't going anywhere, I sort of did lots of cleaning out of backlog. So, like, Skaven that I had unfinished, uh, a black coach, which is a weird, gigantic, lovely model. Uh, like Chris as well, painted a mega gargant. Uh, they still is, need to fight at some point. Yes, well, they do. They, they absolutely <laughs> need to fight. The Megagon release was so weird as it just sort of came and went with no. Mm. It feels like no after effect to it. Like how, almost how, like how they big never are came they? Out. How big are they in real life? Like, they are a bit shorter than the Gash. Um, okay. Yeah, so roughly night sized, I would say. Mm. Yeah, they look. They in terms of height. They're like as tall. Like I'm, trying, I'm looking at one now, like trying to kind of gauge it. Like they're not as like tall as like any big monster that with big wings, like a Bloodthirster or a Lord of Change. But they're much thicker, basically. Mm. Like thick is it's the like, word. Yeah. They are. They are dummy thick, and and they're like height wise, they come up to the tip of the wings of those models. So if you imagine like a Lord of Change with its wings spread, they're that tall. Right. But like, yeah, they they. Um, they are big, and they're really. I, I I love those kits. It was a. It's a. It's a really interesting kit, and I, I agree with you, Chimp. That it kind of came and went in terms of its impact on the game. I obviously present circumstances have a, a bearing on that, but um, I mean, I, I played with it in Tabletop Simulator once, and it did a lot of work. So it is. It can be a thing. Um, but um, but I think the kit is one of the coolest things to paint that GW have produced in a while. It's just very, very pricey. It's a big kind of prestige thing. Like it's, um, you know, particularly because it's, it's more expensive than an Archeon or, or something like yeah. that. I found that weird about it because what you end up getting is a model that doesn't feel like other models in that price range in terms of the finished article. But what you yeah. end up with is like two or three still very full sprues after finish building it. Mm. Um, so if you value having lots of bits, there's probably a lot of value there. But I don't particularly value having lots of bits. So I had to move them on quite quickly. Otherwise, it would just stress me out that there was all this unused plastic sat there. Yeah, I've got all of mine. It's an interesting kit because it builds these three very distinct mega gargants. And as you say... Like, but they're all built on basically the same torso. Um, but the you know the parts of the legs, feet change. One of them is more different to the other two in terms of how much of the pose is shared. It's actually quite impressive how much can be shared and have three very different feeling outcomes. But the bits you're left over with are like I imagine some people will find some really creative uses of them. I'm definitely not a converter, really, or a kit basher at heart. Um, so I'm probably not the person to ask. But they they don't they're not to me as immediately useful as other bits are because it's like a really big arm that's not going to go on any other model right like um so unlike for the kit that they're closest to which is an imperial knight in 40k where those bits you know just simply by virtue of being mechanical you know structural features or armor plating or guns will probably find a home somewhere else um the mega garden gets kind of weird because it's both so specific but it feels like three giant characters which it literally is and it's very very much um i was going to say it's very oriented around just being one of those three things but i have seen some amazing conversions using other bits from equally expensive kits which is a wild thing to do but go for it 
this is sort of like new class of hero model, would you say, for GW in terms of the size and the options in the box? Like, cause, uh, knights are a bit like that as well, aren't they? In 40K. Yeah. Feels like, you know, bringing that to the fantasy universe must have been one of the kind of target objectives of that release. I think it's cool because it gives, like, most armies, every chaos army has the advantage of or having a kind of showpiece big kit in the form of a greater mm. demon, all of which can either be a named character greater demon or just a generic greater demon. But every other army doesn't necessarily have, like, a generic... um showpiece miniature right like you know you might have a nagash or a salastan prime or lariel or morathi but these are going to be specific named characters almost all of the time so i do think it's a kind of move towards having you know ge- interesting generic bear moths for factions that don't already have them and they are mm. massive but I do, um, yeah i definitely envisage mine as being if when I, if I put it on the table primarily with my Nighthorn for exactly that reason, because that's a range that doesn't really have that kind of big model. It's got the black coach, which is big, but it's big yeah. in a different way. Mm. Uh, it's not big in like a in the same sort of tall centerpiece way that uh, a Mega Gargan is. And I always I painted mine with an eye to him. That's sort of the role he would be taking on. Yeah, same. Like I, mine is painted to run with either my Slaves to Darkness or my Corn. Because, like, um, I previously have, like, Bloodthirsters and things that I could run with that stuff. But um, I like, you know, I like having an all-mortal Chaos Army, and it fills that gap for me as well. That, like, and, it, and they're such cool, like, the, the, the one, each of the three can ally with a different faction. Other than, they can all be in destruction, and each of the three has a different faction it can belong to, or a different Grand Alliance it can belong to. And the Chaos one is the War Stomper, which is the kind of... Like, like techno massive techno viking would be probably how i describe them um striding forward um to like drink bottles of water and take drunk people home i guess make sure that they're safe um um and he fits really well with that kind of chaos warrior kind of vibe right and i can imagine them goading some you know huge you know mega gargant into fighting alongside them so yeah very much sort of into the fantasy of it and how it fits alongside other things in the Grand Alliance. It's probably a bit of a trickier choice for order because they get the seaside dude. Love that guy. Is that Mathlan? No, no. I mean, I mean the the mega oh, gargant for gargan order is, is is the the kraken eater. The fish gargan, so, yeah, yeah, amazing. Carries a little boat and a big old tentacle that he eats. I guess. Yes, well, the gatebreaker as well, who has. Bad breath, I guess. That's his uh, the law way that he connects to Grand Alliance death. I was never really quite sure about that one. Um, <laughs> the, the, I mean, the one that connects to chaos just connects to chaos because he stomps. I'm <laughs> sure. That's always an easy sell, though. That's, um, uh, I think um, you both right when you talk about like the idea of not neutral behemoth, but huge centerpiece models that could apply to any army. I'm thinking like you probably so you could ally an order. Uh, Gargan into a Stormcast army, but it would look so out of place given that you have this small gold force and then a giant fleshy, fishman. uh, sort of vagrant fishman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's just like completely aesthetically different and there's no way, it's very difficult to tie those aesthetics together. I'm thinking in terms of like how an army looks on the battlefield. Um, yeah. So, uh, but then I guess like Stormcast have star drakes and stuff like that. So, um, that they do get extra treasure in terms of uh, those bear moths. This has a, like a really fun painting challenge. How did you find them to paint? There's a lot of flesh. 
I thought it was, um, I found it a very fun one to paint. It's an interesting kit, actually, as, as I think, um, you can do quite a basic job on it, which is what I did, and they look good. But they will also, like a sponge, absorb any amount of skill and technique you can put into them. There's some incredible ones online that mm. must have taken hundreds of hours to to do, and they look incredible. But um, they take a the skin took a dry brush very very well actually. Yeah, yeah. I think you can like paint them as if they were just one massive blood reefer and just about get away with it. Um, or like, I, I think I found myself in the middle. Like I, for me, it was like, it was the first model that I significantly used an airbrush on. There are, there are two things that have changed my painting overall in the last year. One is, um, and there's sort of the airbrush is sort of adjacent to it, but it supported it. Um, I found myself, um, um, approaching painting miniatures much more like trying to compose like a scene or control, compose a picture. And it was interesting what you said earlier, like about Instagram. Like I find myself now thinking about what the photo is going to look like as I'm painting the model, which is not to mm. say that you don't paint the back or whatever, but like paying more attention to like the whole picture of the thing rather than some particular detail that I'll obsess over. Cause I know I used to do that a lot, right? Like every gemstone needs to be rendered to the same degree because even this one that's hanging, you know, gently, you know, in, in a pocket of a Zango's dreams, I'll still paint it. <laughs> like, um, and I started, you know, with the help of, uh, uh you know, um, my friend, um, Paul, who's been kind of helping me with art direction on miniatures, you know, since last year now, like got into the habit of doing things like Photoshop paint overs before painting a model, um, to figure out color placement, um, and figure out like how, where effects are going to be impactful. And I've been doing a lot more OSL and, um, object source lighting and things like that. So that, like has helped a lot with getting this idea and that what the way that translates into painting and it starts the mega gargant was the first thing i really used this on is like doing uh pre-shade so basically i paint the model in grayscale before i paint it um so that will start with on a on a regular model i'm doing quickly it's like a back undercoat then a xenothal gray undercoat and then maybe some airbrush white to kind of pick out highlights and things and i find that very helpful i've just finished doing that with marathi um to figure out okay, where, where, you know, um, create the volume, create the sense of volume where you want it, figure out where the light's going to fall, that kind of thing. And then with the Mega Gargan, I found that like after that, combining that with um, lots of glazes of contrast, contrast is, is, is great, incidentally, um, goes with this technique really well. It was actually pretty quick, like, and also, but also it was a case of learning that like, you don't need to render everything to the same level of detail. And I think Chimp's right to describe them as a bit like an effort sponge. You can put a massive amount of effort into one of these models and spend hours and hours and hours on every single part of it. And it will look incredible. And I think I, but I think there's a point quite a lot further behind in terms of the time investment where you invest effort in the right places and you get most of the way to a similar effect, at least at a glance. You know what I mean? You're probably not going to win a golden demon or a crystal brush with that, but um, that's what I found worked for me. So things like the fabric, pow- you know, um, the fabric, like tattered fabric and, and fur and, cl- and and different bits of rope and things like that about the model. Contrast in a dry brush will do that. And contrast over, on a dry brush over a pre-shade um, we'll do that extremely well and quickly. And the other thing I've learned is, particularly with the Mega Gargan, is when you start doing like, um, thinking about the model more holistically, you realize that light kind of is mostly the same color once you figured out what color light is um, for your wherever your monster is standing. 
Um, and you figure out what color the bounce light is, which is the color of the shadows basically on the underside where the light would reflect off the ground. And then you just highlight it those colors or shade it those colors. And then it looks good. And you won't explain why, but basically this is the secret of beige. Um, <laughs> you just dry, just dry brush everything beige and the camera will decide that it looks good. And that's, that's my, that's what I've learned. I feel like I've kind of like wandered off the path there and fallen into the bushes, but that's what I learned painting this big bearded half naked man. Thank you. That's interesting. Uh, so I've seen it refer, refer to some, I'm going to pronounce this terribly, Grisai? Grisai? On Grisai, like, yeah. On Grisai, um, which is uh, an old painterly technique of uh, doing everything in grey shade, painting composition, uh, and then almost shading over it. And mm-hmm. it, it gives it extra volume and extra appearance of presence. Uh, and also sort of does a lot of the work for you once you've established where the sort of central points of light are hitting and where the focal point should be on, on the piece. Um, and I guess the other thing to Google, if anyone's interested in this, is probably zenithal lighting, which is the technique of using sprays to, uh, sort of pre-bake in the direction of light onto a model. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to describe, but once you see someone doing it, it's like, it's very obvious how it works. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I wanted like, I know Paul is, a, Paul is like a, a, a really brilliant artist. Um, and I'll, I'll link to his work in the show notes. And I imagine like his guidance must have really helped to sort of like give you the pointers for that initial grayscale layering on stage. Uh, yeah. So I, I just want to yeah. know yeah, what it was like. It's interesting because it's, it's part of it is like, how, how, how do light work? What do light do when it hits a yeah. thing? Like that, that's the technical side of it. And, you know, books like, you know, recommending, um, more kind of books on traditional art and things like that to kind of pull that stuff together. The other side of it though, which is interesting is like, um, trying to bridge the gap between like, um, you know, traditional art and miniatures painting where the things you can and can't control. So for example, when I did my daughter's a cane, Paul and I did like so many test color schemes. Like we just produced tons of them. We got loads of pictures of actual snakes and they were like, which of these snakes look cool? Cause snakes are crazy. Like snakes are every <laughs> yeah. color imaginable. And I ended up liking this one that was like bright teal with like blood red vermilion eyes. And it's like that combination seems really cool. And also having this like subverted, like blue and red are very like order colors to me, like Grand Alliance order. Blue and gold and red would be like the colors of Stormcast a lot of the time. Mm. So having this subverted relationship with those colors seemed cool for that faction. Um, and then Paul did like a ton of paint overs um, to figure out like what looked good, but he approaches it like a, uh, uh, an artist where you will be thinking about how this character is going to look against a background where you control all the elements of the background as well. For example, where you control mm. like the lighting, of the environment that it's in, even if it's a simple backdrop. And obviously with miniatures, that's not the case. You know, I've talked about like planning for the, you know, doing it for the gram, like planning for the photo, but also knowing that like, I really want this army to look good when you are looking down on it from a tabletop point of view, um, under kind of yellowy room lighting in a, in a, in a sports hall somewhere, you know what I mean? Like, and so planning for that is kind of equally important. And that means having to find ways of like, um, you know, so to give you a practical example, it's like, if you're tempted to, you come up with your color scheme and you really like it. And then you paint the, the back as if you were painting a background behind the characters, if they were standing in a piece of art, whatever color you put behind them to make them kind of, you know, jump out or kind of as a complementary color should probably be the color of your base, because that's the actual background for a miniature. Most of the time is the patch of down on it. skull covered earth that they're standing on. 
And so stuff like that's been kind of cool and helpful. Um, I'm definitely like, it was really, it was, it was cool you mentioned on Guzai because like I discovered that phrase. I didn't know about it and I discovered it like a month or so ago when someone in uh, the Discord mentioned it or linked a video about it, which we can definitely put in the show notes because I've forgotten the name of the channel. Um, and I was, it was cool to discover that that's a technique. I, I didn't realize that the way that I'd started to approach painting was something that had much more depth that I could, I could find in. Um, cause the other good thing about it is it's a lot faster. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, it's helps. so much, it's so much faster to glaze over, uh, appreciate. It's also faster when you realize that you can highlight everything light gray or light cream. And it basically, you know, um, works out well compared to the GW method where often every color or every individual material has its own distinct highlight path, if that makes sense. Yes. Rather than just highlighting everything towards the color of whatever the sky is in the place where the miniature is pretending to stand. Yeah. That's, that's indeed the way that their entire paint line is structured, uh, in in terms of like, uh, which is actually very useful for newcomers, I think, in terms of like getting a good effect quickly. But at the same time, yeah, it's, uh, when you start looking at Ongra's eye and the way that really, really amazing golden painters actually approach their subjects, um, in terms of composition, it has some distance from the GW painting system. Um, so it's kind of, have you found it interesting to get away from that? Do you feel disconnected from that? Or have you kind of left it behind? Um, I know you talk about contrast, which is obviously quite a new thing. Yeah. I think, I think contrast is just a really amazing tool, honestly. Like I glaze contrast a lot. I thin it down a lot. Like, um, I don't, I think it creates a very particular effect and it's good if you just, you know, slap it out of the pot on a model. It's a good way to get things done. Um, but I think it has a lot more versatility like that than, than that. Cause it's basically just highly pigmented, um, ink functionally, even though, you know, acrylic, uh, an acrylic ink. And so it goes through an airbrush really interestingly, you know, it oh, creates this like, um, you, you lose the, the contrast effect where it goes really dark in the recesses, but you gain a kind of intensity of, of translucent color, which is good over appreciate. I've also found myself moving away from GW paints generally. I've been using a lot more scale color, um, uh, dropper bottles and things, um, including, I really like their metals. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think, I think for me, it's just, it's just been a kind of, it's been a good year for figuring out what I think I've started to develop my own approach to painting and it's very baby steps. Like I'm, I'm sort of always aware of like how much more I could do, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think a year, a year stuck inside has forced me to like, um, focus only on that, I guess. And that's been rewarding, I guess. I'd really like, Tom, I'd really like to hear what, what it's been like. Cause you had a really long break from painting, what it was like to come back for you. Yeah. So I came back and, um, Chimp kindly, uh, gave me some, uh, Palantine enforcers who are basically sort of the policemen of the Necromunda universe. And I basically picked the model. They're all pre-undercoated with um, black base coat. And I picked the one with the most open pose, uh, which is just the easiest one to get started with. I just started dry brushing. Just one morning, I suddenly had an urge to just do it. And like, uh, I found it so, so satisfying. <laughs> nice. But also just concentrating on one model, uh, which I came back to throughout the whole day. Uh, and it's still not finished, but you know, it's pretty much all there, uh, in terms of the, the colors and the, you know, the reflections and, uh, try to be a oversell on one of the legs and just sort of playing with the colors, having this kind of, uh, uh, Pantine enforcer who's got this blue armor, uh, with strong yellow, uh, throughout the body, but on, but also orange coming up from the bottom, which obviously clashes with blue, but sort of sets it off as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then the pose is in a 
diagonal. So he's got his left hand down, holding a gun, and his right hand is up, uh, shouldering a mace, uh, which creates kind of diagonal across the miniature. So I was experimenting with having that orange-blue clash on the bottom left of the model, but then going up to the top right, I added greens and started shading green from little lights on the armor and that mm. kind of stuff, just to see what it would look like. And it was it was just um, it was just experimenting. It was an absolute joy with it, and it came out and you know it looked cool and it looks cool in normal lighting so on a sort of like you know uh traditional british day where there's low cloud cover and you mm. can get this sort of gray light uh it still pops like i just put it down on the table i was like okay yeah as at a glance if i had a squad of those that looked exactly like that um with the same sort of color coding the same language color language basically I would be delighted with that. And actually what it made me want to do, actually this was informed also by the amazing Instagram work that I've seen and also people on uh, the role models community and the great stuff they've been doing is that the one thing I really want to make is a diorama now. Like mm. I want to, I want to build the little corner of Necromunda that they police. And I want to ha- like, I have this sort of dream now of having uh, just uh, a little series of shells with basically the lighting I choose LED lights, um, on each level and a little diorama for different mm. fantasies and types of, uh, uh, you know, aspects of the Warhammer universe that I really, really enjoy. And I can completely imagine what that would look like for these guys after just all of that, all of those, like probably about four or five hours of spending time with this, just one small miniature. Um, and it sort of just reignited my imagination for the entire hobby. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it felt amazing. And, and I, so I've dug out my Skitaria as well. And I was thinking about like, Oh, I could do kind of, Mars desert wasteland thing for these guys. Mm. And, uh, that could be like a really cool, I've seen really cool stuff people have done where they've actually like created frames with depth. So there'll be like a sort of wooden frame and then the, uh, Durham will go back about eight inches and there'll be like tiers and, uh, models are set at different tiers to create a story almost like of an army advancing through some woods or something like that. And it's like a, th- it's just a beautiful three dimensional mm. sculptural piece of art. Um, and I've never really thought about that before. I think it's just because, like, uh, I'm so divorced from the game side of it, like, in terms of the actual, you know, how many hits this, uh, this thing is going to deal, like, what the actual kind of the number crunching aspect of the game. Like, I've, I've suddenly uh, sort of come up with a really idealized version of uh, this as a sort of an art form, basically. Um, and that's something I'd really like to experiment with until lockdown is over. And then I'll happily... Uh, go to uh, Jim's house and get smashed <laughs> uh, <laughs> by eels in Age of Sigma or, uh, and go, uh, go to your house, uh, Chris, and uh, play some, uh, play with your amazing tables and beautiful scenery. So yeah, that's, that's been my sort of, re- it's a light way to say smash some snakes there, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, those snakes, are, they're going down. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a, uh, there's a, we've it's, always it's had like, this like victory triangle thing going on. It's fine. It's good. It is. Um, <laughs> it was really funny at the uh, the the uh, miniature monthly event that we did in Cardiff, which um, I still think back on fondly mm. very often, uh, and just how just like try not it was. to think too hard about how long ago it was. Uh, yeah, that's a very yeah. good point. Um, but our ridiculous mega game and everyone else's games just feeding into it, like uh, so uh, so nice. Um, so I'm looking forward to rediscovering some of that, uh, some of that you know human contact. Uh, as mm. we all. Uh, but yeah, hobby wise, like, that's, that's my current direction really. It's like, I'm going to paint up a lot of different models in my back catalogue and 
start thinking about building scenery around them that will create uh, something that I'd be proud to put on my shelf. Sounds like a very, um, yeah, it sounds like a very kind of healthy approach to me because, like, you know, like the game obviously dominates what people think about and how people assign value um, to their models. But, like, yeah. the thing that's guaranteed when you buy a model is you own a model that's nice, hopefully, <laughs> if you bought one that you liked. And if the more value you can extract from that side of it, like the create the creative or the art side of it, I think honestly, the probably the more rewarding the whole hobby is like, you know, um, everyone I think who invests a lot of time and, and money and, and themselves in, in this knows what it feels like to like love a model, but no, you shouldn't put it in your army for whatever reason. Mm. But like, it really is okay to just like looking at things. I had this, uh, this week because I, um, I've been uh, I, I'm getting some photos of my models set up in battle-like scenarios for, for, for someone on Instagram who wanted them. And um, I was taking these pictures and I realized what it's like. I, I had this moment of like setting my daughters a cane in like a battle type way for the first time. I've never used them in real life. And being like, oh, that's, this is what these are for. Mm. <laughs> like, I spent a lot of time painting these. This is, you put them on the table and you put them near the terrain and you go like, oh, look, it's a snake. And that's, that's the, the entire emotional arc, but it's a very satisfying one. Um, and I think reconnecting to that is really important. And I, I think the, the, the path you sound, you're taking with it sounds, sounds really positive because like that's been, I think the trickiest thing for me is this year has been to be, well, not the, not the trickiest thing hobby related anyway, has been to be invested so much in the painting side, but without that context that's provided by doing something with the models. And I think a diorama or, or like, you know, a parade board building is a really good way to kind of get that without access to games or, or tournaments or whatever. Yeah. And it also kind of frees me in particular for this, um, war band in particular, they've got, um, <laughs> what they called ambots, armbots, ambot, I think. Is it? Uh, ambots. It is uh, the big sort of, um, robot bug thing. Yes, yes, but clad, clad in mech armor, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And they've also got Ogrins clad in mech armor and that kind of stuff. And uh, I want to buy those models and feature them in a diorama in a way that mm. I would... like. It, it, the way you build a warband has nothing to do with the rules in that context, but it's just like, what would be cool if I... like? What would be the yeah. centerpiece? And what would be the kind of cool uh, hawking background silhouettes behind the infantry, perhaps in a, in a given scenario? And perhaps I could sort of like throw some LEDs in the background, do some red up lighting or whatever to match the bases. And you start thinking about all this stuff and it's actually, um, as a purely kind of creative project, I think like, that, I, I yeah, quite excited about it. Um, but I know like, uh, Jim, you're working on a, a big hero model at the moment as well as if you want to talk about your journey with it so far <laughs> yeah i mean i'm uh i've tended to always be unlike i think you guys who can decouple the model you're painting from the context of the game that you play it in i've always been really project focused like i've never bought stuff for uh the sole reason of painting it to make it look nice to be on a shelf and look nice on the shelf. There has to be a reason for it. Um, and I've always also just been a real hobby mayfly, just picking up one thing, painting it, doing something else, um, which t tends to end up that combination of traits tends to just end up with owning too many armies. Um, <laughs> but I've just finished painting a whole load of teeny tiny tanks, uh, 
and desperately wanted anything that wasn't batch painting for a while. So uh, I've been, I got gifted uh, Catacross for, uh, for Christmas, I think. And uh, I just finally decided to start painting him and to try my absolute best when painting him. Because, um, you know, normally when you're when you're batching or you're painting for an army or something like that, you're um, you take shortcuts. You're um, looking for the easiest way to achieve a certain result. Um, and I think it's just was an opportunity to, to push myself to see how well I could actually paint, which is probably a little bit worse than what I was hoping it would be. But, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's all um, all a journey, isn't it, at the end of the day? So I've been, um, I've been working on him incredibly slowly over the last sort of week. It's looking good, though, man. Yeah. Thank you. I really like... Uh, like he's so statuesque. It's such an amazing model. Um, and also comes on his own plinth and his own followers and that kind of stuff. It's, it's a diorama yes, in and of itself. Exactly. It's like you were talking about then, the diorama. He is a, a model as diorama, which do you, there are quite a few coming out of Games Workshop now, right? There's um, yeah. there's Catagross, uh There's the um, Triumphs of St. Catherine. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's Glutos or Sleon. Yes, the new Slanesh guy and the Silent <laughs> King, right? Yeah, mm, and, yeah, exactly. So, what, uh, how did you kind of go about, like, uh, co- you know, how did you decide on the colours, particularly the gems? I was thinking, like, cause they like really worked for me against the uh, this ivory hard material that he's sort of made of. Uh, I mean, the the honest answer is that I'm I'm basically cheating. None of it's coming from my own brain. I'm trying to copy the um, trying to copy Richard Gray's Catagross. Uh, Rich Gray, big Golden Demon winning miniature painter. Um, he sort of half finished Catacro, so I'm going to get to a point where I can't copy him anymore. <laughs> which is going to be, which is going to be an interesting moment, I think. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's, um, I think, uh, I don't have the, sort of painting theory behind me that say uh, you and Chris do so I think even when I've uh, gone for like trying to paint really well before um, like the Eidolon of Matalan I did uh, that was still I still for the big sea cloak there um, followed someone else's guide of how they did it before and how uh, they achieved that particular effect I think that's the way I learn, really. I don't think that like following someone else's guide when they've spent thousands and thousands of hours <laughs> on a thing is cheating or undermining talent at all. Like that's. I don't think so either. Isn't that the purpose? Isn't that how you like? How else are you supposed to improve? Like, I mean, like I'm literally talking about how like one of my big breakthroughs this year was asking a friend who's a professional fantasy <laughs> artist to draw to draw on a pic draw a picture of what the model should look like for me so that I can then paint that. And, and a lot of the like. The, there's two sides to that. One is you develop your technique by trying to, like, I literally did this this year. One of the other things I painted was a, um, a miniature for Humblewood, which is a D and D expansion where everyone is like a cool animal person, like red wall style owls and pigeons and, and mice and birds and, and so on. Um, and there's a miniature of an owl knight and the setting is, it's a 
the setting is art directed by uh, an artist, Leisha Hannigan, um, who um, is Paul's partner. So we're friends. And um, I basically just painted this miniature by looking at her art and trying to recreate it on a miniature. Like I one-to-one copied it. And there's two sides to that that are like, so the color scheme, all of those choices were not mine at all, but it was really useful exercise for me, partly because it was um, non-metallic metals and it was a good way of learning that because like um, I'm quoting Paul at this point, but like in the miniatures community, you say non-metallic metal in the art community, you just say metal because that's just how you paint metal. Like you look at how the light reflects off it and you do those colors. And so, you know, it was learning to replicate that. So part of it is learning the technique of like, this is how I, this is how I replicate this particular thing from this piece of 2d art. And, and bear in mind, like, a photo of a miniature is still a 2d, you know, um, hmm. it's still a 2d image. It's it, like, it's the scene of basically. Um, and <laughs> like, um, and so, you know, you, you, you still have to translate what you're seeing to what you are making, which is its own thing. And secondly, you actually have to, and this is the thing that's been huge for me this year, learn to see things because mm. it's actually like to look at something and re- recognize what color something actually is and why it works is like, took me a, quite a long time to go like, Oh, that, that shadow is green. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that. Like I, I, I saw it as like, you know, a dark patch on, you know, in, in the kind of folds of this cloth, I guess that's null noil time. And then no, that's green or that's blue. And then like kind of realizing those are the cumulative things that make such a big difference to your ability to translate the things that you're inspired by onto an actual miniature. So no, I, I mean, and I think it's only by copying that you actually learn that stuff. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to kind of come up with a color scheme from whole cloth and successfully execute it um from like whole you know from from scratch yeah that's how you have a 38 step process of painting red (laughs) yeah well yeah exactly like um i have that is a journey i am still on because every army i paint now has some big red element and the red is done differently in every single one of them Mm. my drukari have two different recipes for red next to each other um because uh i will never learn and i will not improve (laughs) <laughs> I think lots of people sort of tell themselves that they're not artistic. I think this is sort of an ingrained way that people grow up through school. And they're mm. like, unless you like, I think the concept of talent is really overrated <laughs> and perhaps the concept of just repeatedly doing a thing until you understand it is underrated <laughs> when it comes to projects like this. And I've definitely had yeah. this with drawing and um, I've got back into sketching and drawing recently and, Holy moly, my, my, um, uh, like my human sort of body proportion sense is gone, <laughs> whatever, wherever it was. And I'm having to like, I'm basically having to go back from scratch and, you know, actually, uh, and again, I've gone back to tutorials from people who actually know how to do this and they've got like a, a, a knack for it that they have acquired through practice. <laughs> and it mm. does that, you know, practice is, is, you know, <laughs> if you, if you get enough practice in, and you're pleased with the results and you're encouraged. I think that's the good hobby journey to getting better as a painter and not sort of like having too many expectations. That's what I found as well. Like not expecting myself to, I'm never going to produce a golden demon thing probably. Um, but the keyword is probably, <laughs> right. which leaves open that little window. Of perhaps I could, <laughs> um, but you know, not putting that pressure on, on myself has 
made it much easier to have fun with miniatures. And especially when I've got just like, um, I'm lucky enough to have a, a sort of back catalogue chain pile of bits and pieces that I can sort of put together and paint if I want to. Uh, and that's, a, that's obviously like a, uh, that is a privilege, but it's something that I find very useful when it comes to just sort of having fun and not, and it's like a no stakes game. It's just my time with this thing. And I'm going to, it might turn out crap, might not, but that's cool. Like as long as I spent that time and sort of concentrated and it's, it's also a nice mindful exercise as well. I find. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's honestly what makes it a hobby. I think that attitude mm. is, is what makes something a hobby. It's like, I can invest a huge amount of myself in this, but I'm doing it for me and on my time. And, and I'm, I'm the one who determines what my criteria for success are. And yeah. I do feel like that is a really interesting relationship with, the, the community around all of this um mm. which naturally spurs things into getting to the point where they start to acquire obligation like i'm off work this week for example and i promised myself that this week off i was going to definitely finish the shadow queen um and i probably i'm probably not i'm probably not and I, I was actually like yesterday going through this thing of like how do i balance these things i need to do i need to do some housework and i i've you know need to set up a new computer and i need to do all this and i need to finish this model so i should get on it and i'm like hang on a minute no this is the one thing in my life that I invest a lot of time in that isn't a job, you know, or isn't like a set of obligations. Like this can happen in my own time and that's fine. Right. Like this is a treat for me. Um, and, and that's, I think an important thing to kind of check back in with every now and then, particularly when, you know, the, the kind of the weight of, you know, all of that pressure you put on yourself starts to kind of build up again. There's a kind of, there's interesting conflict, conflicts, um, uh, between the, the hobby mindset and obviously just, I want to get ready for a tournament. And mm. the one thing I think about, like, I, I think a lot, uh, Chimp, about, like, the doubles tournament we did mm. and the various kind of, it, it was really fucking stressful, <laughs> to be honest. And, yes. uh, but in lots of really interesting ways. And it was, like, so memorable afterwards that I'm really glad I did it, even though, like, I didn't enjoy every moment of it. I don't know, like, is that, you're much more of a kind of, I think, more of a, like, tournament player. Not like, you know, relentlessly, but you know what I mean? Like more than me and Chris, for example. Um, I mean, the one thing tournaments have always provided me, I think, I mean, I haven't played that many in the grand scheme of things, but I think it's like a, a structure to my painting that I probably need in order to not loaf around doing nothing. I feel like like we've had chats though on where I think like you really enjoy kind of uh, creating ideas for armies. Mm. in terms of like just analyzing a rule set and sort of coming up with an idea and you uh, putting together army lists is actually like a separate hobby of itself like as that kind of feeds into it oh yeah absolutely i think uh covid's definitely impacted that um mm. to a large degree partly just because the gw release hose has slightly scaled back during it and partly just because there's much less gaming happening Although I would say one thing that has been really fun we've been doing recently that uh, Chris has been part of as well is like organized, I guess it's organized play um, mm. on on the Discord uh, of like, uh, so we've been running a, like a teeny tiny team tournament. So just two teams pl uh, playing against each other, going through that process you just described, Tom, of, of looking through books, coming up with army lists to play against what they think their opponents will be coming up with and things like that. And I think that's been a really uh, fascinating process to watch. I've, I've just been sat there watching it like a voyeur because uh, I'm not playing in it myself. But I don't know how you've found it, Chris, sort of engaging with that side of the hobby 
purely yeah. without ever touching the table. Right. Well, cause, so we're using Tabletop Simulator to play Games of Age of Sigma. People are confused how this works, um, which works really well. Um, I played way more AOS in the last you know, a couple of months, thanks to that, than I otherwise would. Um, but it's been a really interesting experience of um, getting into the the weeds of armies. It's one thing it has done actually is kind of, I think even though tournaments and, and sort of playing in person has obviously been suspended, I feel like I have gotten a lot better as an AOS player this year. Like the last tournament I did was early February last year, a Bad Moon Cafe in London. And then, um, and that was one of my better results. And then since then, I feel like I just kind of understand more about the game and mm. kind of how about how, how my armies work. Like oh, not, yeah. not, not good by any extent, but like, oh, I feel I, like, I think you're underselling you. I think the, the, um, since LGT, I guess was the last tournament we both went to at the same time, mm. you've come on enormously as a, as a player, both in like your play and the <laughs> quality of the army that list that you're, you're coming <laughs> up with, right? Uh, thanks. I think one of the reasons for that, and this, I think it's two things. One is just understanding the game better. I think, and the other one is like, I love Zinch. I have no interest in playing competitive Zinch. Mm. Um, some like, I really love Daughters of Cain. I don't think my, my new Daughters of Cain army is necessarily the, the tip of the competitive spear and it's obviously a strong faction, but I think it honestly, it has legs, honestly. And I think I know how to mm. play it. So like, you know, there's, and, and the, the way it plays, Basically, it's not just that I'm, I'm being a kind of, you know, big tryhard who doesn't want to touch the competitive thing. It's more that, like, the way Zinch plays competitively is not a way I enjoy playing the game. Cause it's yeah. all about denying things. It's all about, you know, trapping people with loads of horrors and shooting them to death. Control army, definitely. Yeah. Whereas I made this, you know, I love my Zinch 2000 point list now. And maybe, maybe Tom one day we'll get to kind of do a bit of a rematch because it plays completely differently to my old one. It's all like melee, melee mortals doing interesting Zinchy things, but it's fundamentally like a fighting army. Like Ooh. it, and it's, it's very mid table and that's where it ends in tournaments. But like I enjoy playing it and that's what matters. But I think coming on in my understanding is like partly also understanding more about the whole game. Um, and being able to see, I think, being able to see, like you just said, you know, oh, this faction is actually a control faction. It's kind of not, kind of how I enjoy playing the game. Um, I like to play kind of aggressively and control the tempo of a match. Um, and so that's, and I can adapt that to Corn in some ways, and I can adapt that to Daughters of Cain in, in quite a different way. Um, and, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, the, so I had experienced some tempo in my most recent game. Um, and this tournament has been interesting as well because um, obviously on TTS there's the opportunity to bring anything to bear. It's not limited to what people own. Um, and so there's there's an interesting mix of very, very competitive, uh, not competitive at all, people's actual armies from real life just translated into the tabletop simulator and kind of uh, ex- very experimental stuff. And going through the whole process of the drafting and things were important, but I suspect and I suspect, and I suspect the draft where you, you pair up opponents against each other and armies against one another in particular scenarios will be the thing that we continue to obsess over as a deciding factor. Yes. But I, I think, I think honestly, like a lot of it more comes down to like how everyone kind of feels about the games that they're having. And that's mm. been a really interesting thing because it's such a friendly community and we're all so competitive without saying it, <laughs> without saying it. Like people, people, people are competitive in the way that only people who say I'm terrible and I'm going to lose are competitive where it's like, technically it sounds like you're not competitive, but there's a spark there. 
like you wouldn't have you wouldn't have experienced the pain if you didn't care and so <laughs> and so and so you know navigating that stuff's been fun like my i've played my game now for the tournament and so uh now we're in deep of the kind of preparing for the rest of the games that the team's going to play mm. and so like i'm trying to i'm trying to be a good responsible kind of captain if that's technically what i am um and so i was you know talking to one of our teammates this morning for about an hour and a half about his matchup and things to watch out for uh and i'm gonna try and help in any way i can tomorrow with another one of the matchups and it's kind of nice to um to do that stuff it's it's that's that side of the game i think is really rewarding on the game side not to get into the you know there's um and I think I'm rambling a little bit, but I think that's something that the team structure brings to this is mm. Warhammer communities are constantly talking about hypothetical Warhammer games, right? Like if you, if, if a new faction is announced, then the chat is full of like, well, if this unit does this thing, it will, ha- this will happen. And there's so many problems with theory hammer generally, because, you know, if something says, uh, D six damage on it, the internet assumes that means six damage, um, <laughs> every single time. Uh, you know, if, if, if an ability has affects units within a 12 inch bubble that affects every unit all of the time, um, you know, all of the, the, the reality of play never quite matches up to, to, to think. And, th- and therefore I, I find those kind of discussions can get a bit, um, uh, pointless a bit quickly sometimes, but when it's focused in the con in, in the, in the context of a real game that you're preparing for as a group, I think a lot of the fun of those discussions about like mapping out outcomes and figuring out what to do in what situation and how to try and bait out a particular move and play all that 4d chess actually does become really fun because it has a purpose and it's not this sort of sprawling grab bag of 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 details to cherry pick in order to back up whatever point you're trying to make about why slangor are good actually um it's it's like um it it becomes a, a focused thing that like you know if skeleton do this maybe this good and those are the best conversations as far as I'm concerned. I love hearing stories about uh, team play, especially because um, I imagine like, so Jimmy, you've been a team captain, I think. Uh, yeah. And like, sometimes you, I bet you just have to send an army out to die. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been, what's really interesting about this, uh, especially um, watching Chris. So the, the way this has worked is I've sort of organized it and then sat back and let the two teams have at it. Um, whilst sitting in both of their group chats, nominally to answer any questions that might come up, but actually just to spy on them and see what they're saying. And um, they're a fool to let you in their chat. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's it's really interesting because I think um, they've both had very different approaches, and I think Chris in particular has uh, he's approached it as a nice captain, um, and that's. A very good thing, I think. He's like, you've, you've been specifically trying to engineer not just the best matchups for the team to try and win the whole thing, but you've been trying to make sure that everyone involved will have as much fun as they can. Um, which is very good. Yeah. And I, I think probably the healthiest way to, to, I think um, my bid for captaincy was basically <laughs> to say, I will, I would like you to have a nice time. Please refer back to this statement when we lose. yes well i think my approach to brotherhoods and i think probably the other team in this scenario's approach as well has been that someone is absolutely going under the bus 
in in, in any given round. And um, I think I was quite ruthless, ruthless about uh, bussing one particular person. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was but, the army? Well, it was his fault for bringing Stormcast Eternals. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... but um, no, as, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, that in the game that you've already played, you sort of hadn't really anticipated for the draft that the person who was playing against you had basically announced prior to the draft that he was he was willing to to take one for the team, and so you know, just to catch the absolute worst matchup possible in the in the hopes that someone else would get a better one. Um, yeah, which, uh, yeah, I fell for that. I didn't realize until like end of my first turn that I was the bus. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Never be the bus. Like, like as I'm as I'm like like just just rat after rat, scaven after scaven, bumping underneath the bus as I trundle along, um, realizing looking down at myself and it's like that Mitchell and Webb thing, but instead of being dressed like a Nazi, I'm dressed like a bus driver. Like <laughs> Yeah. I am uh, yeah, I apologize profusely afterwards. <laughs> I mean <laughs> I don't think anyone had any sort of illusions as to not that game in particular, but like the sort of games that were probably going to happen. It's just mm. sort of the nature of the beast in a way. You sort of have to go into it expecting maybe sometimes uh, to have bad games. Um, it does happen. Also, yeah. I mean, you're always going to get a mismatch, right? Like it's just the way that army armies work. Yes, I think mm. the, the idea is to have as few as possible. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's it's not always. It's not always I think possible. also we you know uh, the tournament isn't done yet, so I don't want to you know yeah um, give away anticipate too much. Any, anticipate any results or give away too much. But like, I think also we you have an evolving understanding of what things can do and how they work. Um, what I mean is that sounds like a very arch statement. What I mean is none of us fucking understood how Lumineth Realm Lords worked oh. until like. Yesterday, mm. and so, <laughs> and so, and so. By the time the draft was done, we probably made some decisions we probably shouldn't have done. Um, one of my one of my favourite Warhammer moments over the last few months has uh, absolutely been you guys realising that there was a third page to Teclas's War Scroll. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know it was there. Like, yes, this whole spell seems bullshit. Like, oh, what a. What a nerd. I, I kind of, like, I had the option of taking the Lumineth matchup for myself, mm. and I kind of regret it now because I think I would get murdered, probably, but I think Morathi standing across from a battlefield from Teclas shouting, nerd at him is like canon. <laughs> so, like, um, you know, should have happened, basically. Yes. Got one more, uh, one more Lumineth game. I mean, Lumineth of, uh, we're an interesting one because they're the one army that I don't think anybody who's actually playing in this has in real life. They've been the mm. um, they've been the TTS flex. Yeah. Most most other people have stuck with what they already know. Mm. Mm. Well, obviously, a little elf curious. Well, I mean, uh, you, you're not wrong. I mean, look at look at what I've become. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Chris has gone to the dark side. Uh, I'm yeah. very. Uh, inspired to paint a bunch of Lumineth up because they look like old high elves, and that's seems to have, like you know, must be tapping in on that nostalgia. I, I, uh, I, I'm enjoying reason. the gritted teeth with which Chimp said they do to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, is that, so uh, if I was to collect uh, an infantry focused uh, high elf army, Lumineth army, even 
Would that be viable, Chip? Oh, 100%. Basically. Yeah. Ooh. Their infantry nice. is great. Everything they've got is great. Everything they have is good. Yeah. So oh, they're, they're good. They're good in every phase. Um, <laughs> they they can they can do whatever they like. Um, they've got magic. They've got speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real hold my beer faction to KO coming out and breaking every rule. Um, Luminetta, like, hold on. We need an elf version of this army. They're <laughs> <laughs> hmm. about to get an enormous second wave as well at time of recording. That's not out yet, but. Uh, I don't know That's if you've true. seen that, Tom, but it's full of like swordmasters, kangaroo cavalry. Yep, I love those swordmasters, but man, very. Pretty. I love the old models, but also, uh, yeah, they can. They got some cleave um, or rend, as it's called in this game. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, I, I can't really like afford an army at the moment, so I'm just going through my back catalogue. Mm. But that would be the one I'd pick. Not not for the rules, to be honest, but just because I'd love it. You know, just a lovely regimented army that I could mm. put up in lines, have little, you know, ranked units of spearmen. Uh, the the yeah. rules they have definitely are geared towards wanting to make you rank them up as well in that old oh, school cool. way. So they're they're definitely aesthetically and, uh, you know, in the game designed to make you play them like an old school, uh, you know, like rank and flank kind of army. I'm into that. That sounds great. The heroes are half look dumb, yep. but half look great. <laughs> is what I would say. I think in the, case of, in the case of Techless, you get both in one model. <laughs> like... I agree. <laughs> I agree. Oh, I don't know what to think about that model. Yeah, you're right. I feel comp- like I've got I've got um, the two halves of Marathi sat next to me, so I feel really compelled to just dunk on Techless like relentlessly. <laughs> um, I actually quite like. I I, I like the model. I think. Um, I think the kind of pastels and gold that the heavy metal scheme goes for isn't like for me, like doesn't quite sell the models for me. I felt the same way about the Osiak Bone Reapers when they came out. Like as soon as you start mm. seeing them painted in like the kind of, you know, in, like slightly grimier ways than, than heavy metal team often do. Uh, in, in the Bone Reaper case, I think they look great. And similarly with the, with the Lumineth, I think they, they really support really interesting, vibrant paint schemes. And I think for understandable reasons, there's a heavy metal kind of style guide that keeps things within a sort of like tonal range. Like it very rarely goes completely wild. And, mm. and Lumineth, like Lumineth, when they're painted to almost be luminous, um, Nersh from, from Discord has done this extremely well, like look amazing. Like they, they do look amazing. And I think, I think, you know, I think you could probably get that quality out of Teclis as well, so that his kind of arms wide, you know, dominant T pose, yeah. like, comes off as I think what it's supposed to represent, which is him like radiating, you know, kind of the light of Hish down onto the battlefield. What it kind of looks like is that he is paragliding off a cat, like, it does. but yeah, it's such um, a cool kind of creature as well, like so weird <laughs> and slightly disturbing. The fact that it has a face. <laughs> I, I, like, I think I love about all of the elf gods that they brought in now is they all bring their own legendary Pokemon. To, <laughs> so Alariel brings her beetle and Teclis brings his cat and Marathi brings a bigger version of Marathi. And, <laughs> um, that's it, isn't it? There aren't any others. And so, yeah, like we were in the conversation the other day about what, what Tyrion will bring one day, but you know, yeah, Alternos is on his seahorse, but uh, not quite the same. Uh, level. Yeah, he's not a god, though. That's what I mean. Like it's the mm. you know, yeah, um, yeah. 
Uh, so I think for the last bit of the podcast, maybe we should pick up any particular, uh, you know, releases that have happened in the last six months that we're really excited about, or, you know, at least things that have been advertised that are coming. Um, so I wonder if mm. there are any particular models or, uh, or game boxes or anything that you guys are looking forward to. We might have similar answers here. Um, I would be a liar if I didn't say I was not extremely excited about the uh, Soul Blight Grave Lords. I'm into mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm so... that I sit with about 10,000 points of death uh, in various guises sat on my shelves. Uh, new Plastic Blood Knights. That's that's what keeps me up at night. I can't believe they've done this. <laughs> <laughs> they sabotaged the grey market that has existed for like 15 years for where people... <laughs> try to buy old metal blood knights for yeah. extortionate amounts of money. Yeah, trying to stare at the uh, the previewed models and work out if I need to rebase the kit-bashed ones I made. Uh, no, you, I think you're good. Those are lovely. But I mean, it's the base size. That's the tricky yeah. thing. Cause oh, they're, on, see, they're, on, yeah. they're on 60 by 35s currently. The new ones kind of look like that. They don't look like they're on the big um, the big cavalry bases that like um, blood crushes and stuff are on. Yeah. But... But yeah, um, I think every yeah. every part of the previewed Soulblight uh, Gravelords release looks incredible. Like the new zombies, the new skeletons. They're for Age of Sigmar. They're really understated, um, but they're mm. extremely really good-looking good sculpts. Yeah, just some real classic skeletons and zombies. It's very nice. And you hope that like so many of those, like you'd expect many so many bits in those boxes based on you know the legacy of. Uh, old skeleton kits and zombie kits is that you just sort of basically mishmash them up because they are basically uh, trash in the ground that could look like anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the I think I joked when was it? I don't know when we talked about this chimp, but like I joked that like you know I was being good and like I have like really not started it. Uh, I was going to say like I've been good recently and I started any new projects. Apart from that, thought it was a cane army, but <clears throat> um, but like it was like I feel comfortable with the armies that I've got. Like the things that would draw me out of like that particular comfort would be like mortal slanesh or vampires. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, come on. Like, you know, like anyway, but uh, that, that, that's not to complain because I really do like them. But I think what I'm going to do, I'm really looking forward to Cursed City, uh, new Warhammer quest. Yeah, me too. Um, which is basically like, um, like Warhammer quest, like Mordborn or Bloodheim. Like, it's somewhere between Bloodborne and Mordheim, and, like, I feel like, Tom, you and I, like, I think this is, like, it feels a bit targeted. I don't know if you get that, like... like, I got the same thing. It's, like, the two podcasts, or the two, like, the two, like, two-man acts you and I have done in the course of doing things for C&C in one game. It's, like, uh... I think, like, Jim, you messaged me and said, uh, with the link to the first reveal of it, it was, like, are they, uh, are they inside your head in, in a sort of like weird way where like is there a camera that GW have in my house somewhere that uh, can see inside my brain and understand exactly how much I want this game and also the sculpts have been amazing that they've revealed so far and I'm super excited about it I'm gonna yeah play, I'm gonna buy it play to death my plan for it is to, uh, I'm going to get that box and I'm going to set myself the challenge of painting it all fairly quickly. Um, and that's going to be like, I really want to use that box to push my, to, to close a loop on that conversation, my kind of, um, pre-shade or on painting. 
a bit further mm. than I have been because I think um, it will lend itself really well to that kind of like I want to I want to take that stuff and push it even further in a slightly like moody kind of John Blanche direction. Oh, cool! Like deep shadows, like and I'm going to basically nick a bunch of color schemes from Bloodborne concept art and like to the extent that I might do some like sepia, like some real like you know to desaturated. Uh, grimy feeling zombies and things and try and paint the entire set. And one thing I'm going to do is even though that set does overlap with soul blight grave Lords in AOS proper, I'm not going to try and hold myself to either the color scheme I did for my vampire army that I already have already made mm. or to what might work on an army level. And then I'll probably, but, but what I probably will do is then try and if I do decide to go on and do soul blight as an army, try and see how to then sort of build that out into a force. But I, I love Warhammer quest. I know I've, I've seen people say that like, you know, they haven't a chance to, you know, it maybe is a tougher proposition because it's, you know, it's when are we going to be able to get four people around the table to play again? Um, but what Blackstone Fortress for me is like one of my favorite games workshop products of the last couple of years. Mm. I played it a ton with a friend and that rule set continues to get more interesting. And from the, the community site previews that they've put out, it sounds like it's getting more interesting again. And so like, for me, it's like kind of a very confident thing to get into. Like, I love the way it looks. I'm excited to paint it rather than have it sit around. Like I kind of want to create this kind of, you know, make a moody board game out of it. And then if an army emerges from that, amazing. Um, and then kind of, um, yeah, then maybe, then maybe play it. Like, actually, that's another point, like, to the diorama point. Like, that is a set of models that I can imagine sitting on a shelf together being moody. Exactly the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, yeah, just, I just love a good witch hunter vibe. It's, it's, it's old school more time, but with that, like, added, uh, grimdock, I suppose you might say. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's the most amazing starter kit for either, like, in- Inquisitor warbands or, like, you know, Warcry Warband, it's weird. Right. It's in exactly yeah, it could the go middle both ways. between those yeah. two things. That's the other thing, actually. Like, um, it's not quite a, a game I'm looking forward to, but I'm really looking forward to getting back to playing Warcry. Um, cause I love that game and I sort of glossed over it a bit, but like, um, I picked up Catacombs, which looks really fun and I'd really like to play, which is the kind of underground corridor based Warcry. And, um, you know, the, the the books they released late last year, the kind of um, Grand Alliance books to kind of bring all of the factions up to spec, I think have turned that game quietly into like a really good campaign-based AOS skirmish system. I really want to play more of it, actually. Mm. So that might be something for That's when exciting. all this when all of this ends. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. I'm excited. And I'm excited about this Saturday because this Saturday, hopefully, the postman will bring me my uh, Drukari Codex and I can sit down and read another long book about elves whom have spike. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think like uh, we don't have questions because obviously we're coming back after a year, but I think the very last thing we could probably chat about a little bit is just what we're planning to do next hobby wise or with the hobby. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Jim, what, what, what's your, what's your, I guess Catacross is one thing, but you know. Yeah. Fin- finish him off. I don't, He'll he's going to end up taking months, but I don't want him to. Um, I mean, there's a huge pile of primed minis behind me, and it's mostly Ardeneth Deepkin. Um, so hopefully by the next time we speak, I'll have some more fish elves ready to go, some sharks, some uh, 
I'm not going to lie, a couple more eels as well. I love the way you based your eels with um, uh, old kind of like terrain kits, mm. rather than the kind of like the the classic plastic. Av- avoiding flying stands approach. <laughs> yeah, they look great. How about you, uh, Chris? Um, so Shadow Queen and Marathi um, for a little while to come. I'm not sure if that, so I suspect I'm going to come out of that with more momentum. I always have this thing with my daughters of came, but midway through the process, I go like, Oh oh God, what's what's happening? Like kind of right. It took me three months to paint because they're so fiddly. And then mm. I come out of it with loads of momentum again. So after this, I'll probably stay with daughters of came because I've only got 10 blood stalkers, which are the archer snakes and meat of the shadow stalkers to paint. And the army is done which is a milestone worth getting to. Nice. Then I then I have 2,000 points that I could stick in a box and take to Chimp's garden to get sunburned <laughs> and make him sad again. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I'm tempted by a few things. I suspect that the I've got a bunch of Drukari that are kind of waiting for a go, and I've been waiting for the codex to figure out like how to build them. Like I have some like bikes and Cabalite warriors and things, so that might be direction um. to go in. I feel like I... I painted a one-off um, Slaneshi Lord of Pain um, that I really love doing. So I have Sigvold on the side um, who is waiting for a paint job and I know how I want to do that. So I might do him next. So it's kind of open at the moment, actually. Like I think it's it's tempting though to just try and get to the end of this particular journey with Daughters of Cain because then as and when, if things, you know, if restrictions lift when when they currently look like they might, then I'll have like, a completely new 2000 point army to, to go and play with. But the other side of that though, is I really want to play with my mega gargan and that's from like yeah. six months ago now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it might be that that's the first game I play, you know, when we're, when we're done, basically got a lot of Warhammer to paint, to be honest. <laughs> so I'll probably just, you know, fire myself into it in some direction or another. I've also got a, um, uh, my friends very, very kindly last year for my birthday, got me a Tantalus, which is the crazy Drukari like forge world catamaran. Oh, wow. um, of death, which, um, How is such an intimate fragile is that resin. Um, well, <laughs> it's not really. So the, the central body of it is like a huge chunk of resin. It looks like a trophy. It looks like a trophy you would spray gold and give someone for like most like edgiest elf 2021, right? Like, um, it's, it's massive. Um, it's very heavy. It's hilariously provided with like a 60 mil flying stand for a foot long block of resin. And there's no, intention, Lord. there's no, there's no indication of how they expect that to work other than like maybe good luck. Like, um, so I ended up all joint in there as well. Yeah, it is. So it's just like blonk. Um, so I ended up finding a guy in America who makes custom magnetized flight stands for various 40 K models, including the Tantalus where it's like a, basically a quite a heavy 3d printed base. That's heavy enough to take the weight and support it. So I got a lot of work to do to kind of do that. So maybe I'll try and take that on. Cause it's one of those, um, I have a, I have a, this is a good problem to have, but I've, um, as Christmas and birthday presents of the last couple of years, I've been given some very intimidating models. And I think one of my resolutions for this year is to get to the end of this year, having finished them all. So that means, Morathi, which is on the way. It means Archaeon and it means the Tantalus. Um, if I can do all of them, then I think I will feel no shame at all, as opposed to some. That's reminded me that I've got a, a box in the cupboard just completely full of 30k salamanders that at some point need to get painted. Mm. The box yeah, I, well, I mean, occasionally remember I have. Oh, yeah. 
That time, yeah. that time eight months ago, everyone was really into Horus Heresy for some reason. Well, last year I agreed to play in like a Horus Heresy, like a uh, slow grow league thing. And so I was all in on a thousand suns again. And that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> How about you, Tom? Uh, what do you think your next foray will be? I don't know. I don't, I don't quite know. I'm, I'll probably dry brush another few kind of necromander policemen and see if, how they could hear. And then also in tandem, watch sort of a bunch of YouTube videos about how to make terrain mm. to, in order to create these dioramas, small ones, just a little, like a little one could be like one foot by one foot with a little warband in and, um, trying to kind of create uh, a universe around these characters. And I've been thinking a lot about like what a 2000 AD miniatures game might look like. Mm. And it's pretty close to Necromunda. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, but you could have, yeah, it's, it's basically, is that like, I think Necromunda is basically 2000, 2000 AD, the miniatures game. Um, so I want to kind of, I'm going through back, uh, backlogs of comics and looking at kind of color schemes for a lot of the underhive warriors that basically exist in the 2000 AD universe, as well as the Warhammer universe. And sort of thinking about color schemes and how to present it. So yeah, I want to nice. make a diorama. That's, nice. that's my, that's my objective. It's funny. I, I was, th- I was back on the diorama thing the other day. Um, this is like the, the tangent, but because, um, I bought, uh, Pip, my partner, a present, which was, cause she, she was kind of thinking about getting back into Lego, which I hadn't, I hadn't thought about Lego for a long time. Mm. Um, and I was looking and they have some really amazing kits now, like diorama kits, including an amazing Sesame Street Lego diorama kit. Oh, wow. And, genuinely like i don't know i think i think i'm similar to you tom like i get there's something i love about miniature worlds like i've loved them since i was a kid like and that's distinct from miniatures in some ways like i love miniatures but there's something about an icy setup diorama something you can kind of like lose yourself in that i really really love it's also what i love about the best piece of fantasy art i love as well is that sense that like there's this whole scene to kind of explore Mm -hmm. um and this uh sesame street diorama is like weirdly set off all of those same like incredible like you know like looking at all of the details and kind of getting lost in this thing it set off my desire to make an armies on parade board which was the weirdest like collision of vibes that i think i've encountered in a while that like you know, <laughs> like being able to peer through a window into elmo's bedroom was like going like i need to make a i need to make a mother cauldron for my daughter's <laughs> a cane <laughs> they've had ah, such a mistake that 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 kit, that Lego set is called like one, two, three Sesame street and not Elmo's on parade. Like <laughs> just turn it into a, you know, um, when you were describing that, I had an image in my mind that was just like Sesame street characters advancing across a war board. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it would be like, I don't Elmo's fire. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, but it's like, it, it's, it's, you know, it is the original, um, blessed city. In, in opposition to the cursed city. <laughs> <laughs> there's some, there's some, what I'm sensing, there's a joke here somewhere. Like, yeah, like, I can feel some, that too. Like I was, I was, my brain was trying to find like soul black graveyards, the count, like where does this come together? I don't know. Probably doesn't, but, um, you know, we haven't done this for a really long time. So who can blame That's us? Very true. Please forgive us everyone. <laughs> yeah. Please forgive us. Uh, and I think that is probably all we have to chat about for today. Um, if you want to send us questions, you can send us questions at questions at Craig Crowbar. Please put minis in the headline. Otherwise, on, I will don't not we have find... an email address for this? Do we? 
Yeah, I think it's miniatures at crateandcrowbar.com. Oh. Do you remember from when we did a podcast? This is <laughs> miniatures <laughs> monthly. <laughs> no, you, you're not wrong. I guess. So yeah, email that. I'll tell you what, said. what we should probably also um, say is if people did send in questions for previous ones, then we should probably go back over that backlog at some point. Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah. also maybe for the record, no question section in this podcast means that certain people's unbroken records are getting questions answered are remain unbroken <laughs> because no question section was undertaken. Correct. Okay. Just wanted to make that the FAQ just issued in advance. There, <laughs> like, Absolutely right. Um, it's been a, a real joy to talk about miniatures again with both of you. <laughs> I really genuinely has Chris Thurston um, and Chip, Matt Ward. Thank you both. And I think thanks for listening. And thanks to you, Tom Senior. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been lovely. Goodbye. Goodbye.